0: Welcome to our new series, On the Pakistani Couch. Our first series will be exploring and analysing the book series, written by the British author Roald Dahl. I'm your co-host, Dr Farah Khalid, and I am a Consultant Counselling Psychologist and Assistant Professor in Clinical Psychology. I have a private practice based in Islamabad, and I have around 20 years of experience in clinical work and in providing therapy whilst i've specialized in humanistic psychoanalytic psychotherapies i also weave in cognitive behavioral therapeutic methods as well in my work and you can learn much more about me in the episode notes so please feel free to pop in there and learn more about me in my background I provide teaching, training, supervision for clinical psychology trainees, graduate psychologists, therapists and counsellors. And whilst in my work so far, I have worked with a, a broad range of mental health difficulties and issues. My particular specialism is rooted in what we know as personality problems or uh, a difficulty in the sense of self and another term that we use is personality disorders or pathology of the self so that's where my specialism is rooted in. I am hoping to draw on my professional insights so far in the 20 years that I've been practicing and I'd also like to bring in my insights personally being a mother as well so in each episode I'm hoping to sprinkle in some tips for parenting or improving family life so for those of you listeners out there who are parents or are currently in conception or are planning to conceive I really hope that you will benefit from hearing about some of those tips and you'll be hearing me have a conversation with my co-host her name is Fatima Hussain and she is a psychodynamic psychotherapist also based in Islamabad. She works with a diverse population and is curious about the intersection between mental health and institutional power. She feels very passionately about making therapy accessible and culturally appropriate to the Pakistani context. What I find really valuable in my work is I consider it to be a backstage pass into the human condition and dilemma. And I feel really honored that I'm allowed to share this journey with each of the people that come to see me. They allow me to witness their struggles and they give me permission to help them. And I feel very privileged for that opportunity. And that's why I'm very, very passionate about my work. We hope that our series will give you some points to ponder, nuggets of wisdom, and more importantly, a deep psychological perspective on everyday issues through the lens of Roald Dahl. We would love you to write in to us, especially those listeners who are able to remember their dreams, who are curious about their unconscious life and would like to know more. We would want you to write into us and we can provide you with our psychological insights and our dream interpretations. Please remember that any dream material that you do send us or any other personal content will be kept strictly confidential and it will be anonymized. Apart from that, you can write to us with your comments and any feedback. We'd be delighted to hear from you. You can e- either email us on couch at gmail.com or or you can tweet us at on the pack couch. We really hope that you enjoy our series. So today's episode, we're going to be covering um, the story, uh, which is Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, now, a lot of our listeners actually might be familiar with this. Maybe perhaps you were reading it as a uh, at school as a child. Fantastic Mr. Fox, and there's also a, a a film adaptation as well of this. I believe it came out a few years ago. Um, I've not actually seen the film, uh, but first time learning that there is the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not. Um, it's like an animation. Animation. So it's an animated version. But from my readings of the reviews, it wasn't really didn't receive a lot of kind of you know positive uh, yeah it wasn't like like the it wasn't at all similar like the BFG was mm-hmm. the BFG was much more received much uh, better yeah. from the you know from the children um, yes. in the 1980s but anyhow so let's talk a little bit about the plot of Fantastic Mr. Fox mm-hmm. so Fantastic Mr. Fox is about um, Mr. Fox and his family so he has a wife and he has four um um, and there are three farmers, um, they're called Bunce, Boggins, and Bean um, and so there are three farmers Roll Dahl describes them as being quite um, gluttonous really in a way. So they're, they're, they're farmers and they have um, chickens, geese um, and duck. Uh, so, they have a lot of access to this kind of food. Um, they, uh, you know, it's, it's an abundant supply. Um, and it's, it's very interesting how they're physically depicted. So, uh, the three of them are very different. So, one is described as being quite tall and lean, one is like a dwarf like, very short. And then the other one, the other third farmer, is described as being quite heavy and, and big. Uh, Roldal describes him as being quite enormous. Um, so there are the three farmers, and then Mr. Fox has a habit of stealing from them um, for his for his children and his family. And the farmers then find out about Mr. Fox, and they're on a mission to shoot and find Mr. Fox and hunt him down. Naturally, um, so what they do is they, they try and they, they they do get to Mr. Fox's hideout. They um, unfortunately shoot uh, his tail off. So. Mr. Fox is castrated yes. by his tail, yes, and he yeah, he is. And so he's the poor thing's injured and wounded. And then the three farmers don't don't stop. They actually get machinery and diggery and this, sorry, not diggery. and um, they get uh, digging. Mm-hmm. So they actually dig um, down Mr. Fox's hole, um, and they're very very determined to kind of find and capture and kill Mr. Fox because because of the stealing. Um, and then Mr. Fox and his family are hiding in the hole in this uh, deep, dark pit down below for three days and three nights. And I'm going to come back to that in a little while about the symbolism of that. Um, and then then they, uh, they're starving. They go through this kind of calamity and... Um, they then have an idea. Mr. Fox has a plan. Let's kind of, you know, just keep digging, digging, and digging, and let's see where we end up. So they're digging frantically with help of their little cubs, and they end up near the end of the story. We learn that they end up in the storehouse of the three farmers, and then they've got access to the chickens. And of course, the farmers don't know that that Mr. Fox has found found their storehouse. Um, the way the story ends is that Mr. Fox is. Uh, um it is met by the community of other animals so there's a there's a badger family and a weasel family um and they come and join them and then they have this big great supper feast with with the food with the chickens and the geese and the mm-hmm. duck and then mr fox
1: decides to stay there forever <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, that's it and the farmers are kept waiting yes uh, and they've got access to the food and the drink and they're all living together. Or that the, that's the hope, that they live together yeah. um, and stay indoors. So just before we get into the three days and the symbolism of the three days and three nights, Dr. Farah, what were kind of your um, feelings as you read this book? Mm-hmm. Like the emotional journey of reading
0: um, this could be just my own kind of perception of it. I, I, I found it really um very kind of um very light in some ways. Not not I'm looking for for the for the right word, not superficial, mm-hmm. but, but maybe because I was going deeper within like what the meaning of stealing is mm-hmm. and all of that, but I, I found it quite um amusing at times what's happening but but also very um, simple Mm. light light a little bit sort of airy fairy Mm. and you know for for, for a child so I was kind of reading this okay if I was a child reading this Um, it would just not mean much like it would just be not mean very much you know mm-hmm. that oh you just live forever and mm-hmm. it's a very happy ending and mm-hmm. all's nice and glory we've got you know abundant mm-hmm. access to food and no troubles in life and mm-hmm. um, then there was another adult part of me that felt really um actually I, I, now that you're asking me there was a little bit of an annoyance
1: okay perhaps at rolled doll okay okay Tell us more about
0: that annoyance. Uh, The annoyance about, well, hang on a minute. Like, you can't just stay in a hole forever. Like, you've got to get out and face the world and you've got to grow. But Mm -hmm. I I think that's my, that's my philosophical side speaking. And I know that that's a huge bias because Mm -hmm. the way that I perceive, Mm -hmm. you know, my own world Mm -hmm. view and the way I perceive Mm -hmm. the world and Mm -hmm. things.
1: But but I was slightly annoyed. Okay.
0: Yeah. I found myself being a little bit annoyed.
1: Yeah, I can I can understand that. And like you said, it is a very it's a very fast read. It's you know you can finish it in, in one sitting, and it's, it's fast, and things happen very quickly one after the other. So I can imagine this being a really good book for children to read. Um, but I thought it was really dark. Like I thought about you know the potentially the children dying, them starving, them, oh. the, the anxiety of being dug out of your home. Uh, I just thought like the undercurrent of it was so dark Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd go on to say more about that Mm -hmm. but I I can relate with that kind of dichotomy of it's like amusing and fast and uh, simple and then also just like this deep stuff that's lurking underneath that children are probably not going to pick up on but um, yeah, as an adult reading Mm it, that's what it felt like. That's interesting. Mm. Right, so... Why don't you tell us a little bit about the symbolism of the three days and three nights? Okay,
0: so when I read this chapter, this is this is sort of like sort of halfway in between the story in halfway into the story, Mister Fox has a plan. Um, this is where they're hiding in the hideout in their hole. Of course, they're you know scared to death of going out because they don't want to be shot and killed, and the, the, there's four children as well. Um, and there is a bit where um, it says, for three days and three nights, this waiting game went on. How long can a fox go without food or water? Bogus asked on the third day. And Bogus is one of the farmers because they're, they're kind of waiting outside for the fox to come out so they can shoot him. Um, and so what, what I was thinking was the three days and three nights is very interesting symbolism. I'm not sure if Rodol Thought about this when he was writing it, but we, we know that there are you know sacred references. So if you have a look at biblical uh, the biblical narrative, then we know about um, the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Yonah, So for those listeners out there who might not be familiar with with the story, of course we can't go into too much detail. That's mm. not the place here. But I made the parallel between three days and three nights. Um, and uh, um, that the prophet Yonah being in calamity for three days and three nights, he was in the belly of the whale or the mm-hmm. fish. Um, so the basic story is why Yonah kind of refuses this prophetic mission that God mm-hmm. asks upon for him yes. to go to the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is actually modern, uh, modern day. It's a city called Mosul or a town called Mosul in northern Iraq. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you read about Mesopotamia, Meso- Potamia, um, that's basically what Iraq is now, modern day Iraq. And of course, it wasn't called Iraq then, right. back then. So that's where, for those of you out there who are visual and want to, you know, imagine the world map the map in front of you. So that's what we mean by Nineveh. Nineveh, that's where God wanted Yonah um, to go and to, you know, seek repentance and do this prophetic uh, mission, and Jonah refused. Right, so Jonah didn't take that up. Um, he fled. So the story is that uh, he fled, and there are different versions of the story. Of course, it's only I'm only re- re- narrating what I've read. Um, he flees, and then there are fellow uh, fellow travelers on a boat or a ship, um, and he's in the Mediterranean Sea. Of course, so this is the Mediterranean Sea, and he's fleeing, and he's going to what we now know as. Back then it was called, um, I think it was called Tarshish, that's right, it was called Tarshish, but now it's the north of Gibraltar. So mm-hmm. you know, Gibral- yeah. Gibraltar and Spain are very close together. Yeah. You can actually see, see. Gibraltar, yeah, mm-hmm. from, from Malaga. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he fled, and if you can imagine, like the course of the sea mm-hmm. all the way down mm-hmm. to the west mm-hmm. of the Mediterranean, mm-hmm. Mediterranean Sea. And so Yona is, is understands that, you know, God's angry with him. What's he done? There's a huge storm in the sea, a rageful storm. The fellow travelers are very annoyed with him that, you know, look what you've done because of your refusal We're you know, in this storm now we're going to die. So Jonah sacrifices himself and says, okay, just throw me out into the sea. And they do. They throw him out into the sea and he's about to drown. Mm-hmm. So the story goes that God saves him, protects him by putting him, Uh, well he gets swallowed up by a whale or a big fish Mm -hmm. and then he's actually sitting in the belly for three days and three nights before um the whale spits him up vomits him back up Mm -hmm. and guess where he ends up Mm -hmm. back to the city of Mm (laughs) Nineveh where he refused refused God's mission um so so the reason why I'm drawing a parallel is because with Mr. Fox, right, although we know Mr. Fox isn't a human, yes. he's an animal, but yes. uh, is Mr. Fox is, is has, has come so close to the encounter of death, and not only of his own death, but the death of his family. Um, you know, they're starving, they could have died if they hadn't dug and dug and dug and found the storehouses. And the way that I'm seeing it is that Yonah kind of, even though he was still apparently angry with God, um, he accepted, he repented, and, and I, I suppose I'm suspecting, um, what, from what I know about the human psyche, um, is maybe Yonah um, evolved psychologically, maybe he had some psychological growth, maybe he had a personality change, you know what we say is personal growth, where we let go of our old beliefs and habits and things like that, and we come to a new level of psychological being and understanding. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm only guessing that that's what Yona, what happened to Yona after he uh, repented and completed the mission that he needed to do. You know, with with the people of Nineveh, um, and with Mr. Fox, we don't actually see that happen. Mm-hmm. What happens is he. He, it, it's almost like I, I don't. This is a very strong view, and I know that, but I don't see any humbling of Mr. Fox. Like, yes, of course, who wouldn't want to feed your family forever because you found these storehouses? Mm-hmm. But, but has he really taken a, a spiritual lesson or a? What What has he learned from being so close mm. to his
1: family dying? Mm. I think that's a really good question. um and, and I think what he probably maybe not learned, but he maybe doesn't want to put his family and himself in that situation again. So he decides that the safest way is to not do anything at all um, and, mm-hmm. and not have growth in some way, which I know we'll talk about later in, the, in this episode. Uh, but that's a really interesting connection. And I'm sure, but well, I'm assuming that for Roldal it wasn't an intentional parallel mm-hmm. that he drew. Mm-hmm but it seems quite significant mm-hmm. in terms of the number three.
0: Yeah, yes, and the number three as well. Um, so I, I was also thinking connected to this, I was thinking about the number three was, uh, so there is this uh, it's very archetypal for me Mm -hmm. because you know, being in the bellies uh, being in the, pardon me the fish's belly, Mm -hmm. it's like being back in the mother's womb, right? in the darkness, the primordial kind of unconscious, Mm -hmm. and then when Jonas spat out again, Mm -hmm. he's given a second chance, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a reaper, that's it? Mm -hmm.
1: yeah
0: I hadn't thought of it like that yeah, rebirth, and that—that's why I was thinking about well, Mr. Fox. Has he really had a rebirth of his, mm-hmm. you know? But but no, you're you're right. He's not going to, you know. He's going to be thinking about survival. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I thought it was very archetypal, and also, you know, the moon. If we look at the lunar lunary, lunary mm-hmm. um a uh, uh, celestial body that we have, which is the closest to our planet, is the moon, mm-hmm. and the moon actually also spends three days in full darkness we don't see anything when it's you know before the new moon comes out the lightness the
1: consciousness yeah okay interesting mm-hmm. and i know three the number three is significant in other ways in, in kind of the you know in our profession doctor <laughs> you might not want to go into that but it's also three farmers uh, so that's another three so i wonder what you've made of oh. that <laughs>
0: I'm looking to Fatma to answer my, <laughs> but she's right. So yeah, the, the in our profession as psychoanalysts, we would be very Freudian here, and we would, be, you know, number three means the phallic stage, which is when children are between three and six, roughly, mm-hmm. and that's where they um, experience, you know, um, uh, kind of uh, phallic phallic sort of elements, you know, where they would there's a lot of sexuality kind of emergence of knowing one's own body, knowing that they, you know, boys have have a phallus and, and uh, um, girls, uh, you know, have, uh, girls have, you know, th- their own kind of uh, genital area mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And knowing, and also feeling jealous between the, you know, the opposite sex parent wanting to have the opposite sex parent. Mm-hmm. So number three does, it there's a lot of sexual, Symbolism with the, the number three, mm-hmm. and in my practice, and I'm sure and certainly in yours, mm-hmm. um, there are references. you know when people say to me in my consulting room, they'll mention the number three mm-hmm. in whatever capacity. Like I was three years old when this happened, or you know, um, or let's say, you know, even 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 just something so benign as if somebody's withheld a, a payment for, for for the for the sessions for three weeks. Mm-hmm even then I would be I wouldn't take it I wouldn't take it as a dogma, but I would loosely wonder whether the three weeks that they've delayed does it mean something? Does it mean the phallic um, theme here?
1: Yeah and, and I was also thinking of you know three and in terms of triangles right So three corners and, and triangles are significant for their own um, whether it's transactional analysis, whether it's more psychodynamic kind of thought um so yeah it was interesting maybe three there's there's other uh ways to make meaning of the three in terms of numerology and stuff but
0: oh absolutely three is the number of creativity Uh because because you know like two man woman Mm -hmm. plus child yeah so you know three Mm -hmm. is like the symbol of creativity and generation Mm -hmm. Uh, but also you're right there's a very triangular quality to the number three Mm -hmm. um but from what I know about, if you're thinking about it from a numerological perspective, mm-hmm. then three does symbolize um, creativity, generation, mm-hmm. and uh, the life force. Ah, uh, okay. Um, Which I mean, it did
1: for Yona, perhaps. <laughs> 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 but not so much for Mr. Fox. No,
0: not not so much for Mr. Fox indeed. Mm-hmm. And, and number three also, um, even like fairy tales, there's three tasks for the, mm-hmm. for the damsel in distress mm-hmm. to
1: complete, or there's three... That, that it's everywhere yeah and I'm immediately thinking of that one with the I don't know which one it was but with the axe in the in the pond uh, and it comes up three times um, oh, yeah. and he and the last, the third time is the time that actually bring out the axe of gold I can't no. remember but yeah three, it's really significant yes. in fairy tales also
0: yeah which suggests that it's so archetypal hmm. three is very archetypal Light Light, a little bit sort of airy-fairy and you know, for for, for a child so I was kind of reading this okay, if I was a child reading this Um, it would just not mean much, like it would just be not mean very much, you know, mm. that, oh, you just live forever and mm. it's a very happy ending and mm. all's nice and glory. We've got, you know, abundant access mm. to food and no troubles in life. Mm. Um, then there was another adult part of me that felt really, um, actually, I, I, now that you're asking me, there was a little bit of an annoyance. Okay. Perhaps at rolled off. Okay,
1: okay. Tell us more
0: about that annoyance. Uh, The annoyance about, well, hang on a minute. Like, you can't just stay in a hole forever. Like, you've got to get out and face the world and you've got to grow. But Mm -hmm. I I think that's my, that's my philosophical side speaking. And I know that that's a huge bias because Mm -hmm. the way that I perceive, you know, my own world Mm -hmm. view and the way I perceive Mm -hmm. the world and things. But but I was slightly annoyed. Okay.
1: Yeah. I felt myself being a little bit annoyed yeah I can I can understand that. And like you said, it is a very it's a very fast read. It's you know, you can finish it in, in one sitting and it's, it's fast and things happen very quickly one after the other. So I can imagine this being a really good book for children to read. Um, but I thought it was really dark. like I thought about you know the, the potentially the children dying, them starving, them, oh. the, the anxiety of being dug out of your home. <laughs> Uh, I just thought like the undercurrent of it was so dark mm-hmm. um, and I'd go on to say more about that mm-hmm. but I, I can relate with that kind of dichotomy of it's like amusing and fast and uh simple and then also just like this deep stuff that's mm-hmm. lurking underneath that children are probably not going to pick up on but um, yeah, as an adult reading mm-hmm. it, that's what it like. That's interesting. Mm. Right, so... Why don't you tell us a little bit about the symbolism of the three days and three nights?
0: Okay, so when I read this chapter, this is this is sort of like sort of halfway in between the story, in halfway into the story, Mister Fox has a plan. Um, this is where they're hiding in the hideout in their hole. Of course, they're you know scared to death of going out because they don't want to be shot and killed, and they've the four children as well. Um. And there is a bit where um, it says, "For three days and three nights, this waiting game went on. How long can a fox go without food or water?" Bogus asked on the third day. And Bogus is one of the farmers because they're they're kind of waiting outside for the fox to come out so they can shoot him. Um, and so what, what I was thinking was, the three days and three nights is very interesting symbolism. I'm not sure if Roldol about this mm-hmm. when he was writing it but we, we know that there are you know sacred references so if you have a look at biblical uh, the biblical narrative then we know about um, the book of Jonah in the Old Testament Yonah so for those listeners out there who might not be familiar with the, with the story of course we can't go into too much detail that's mm-hmm. not the place here but I made the parallel between three days and three nights um, and uh, um, that the prophet Yonah being in calamity for three days and three nights, he was in the belly of the whale or the fish. Um, so the basic story is why Yonah kind of refuses this prophetic mission that God asks upon for him to go to the city of Nineveh now Nineveh is actually modern uh, modern day it's a city called Mosul or a town called Mosul in northern Iraq Mm -hmm. so you know when you read about Mesopotamia um, that's basically what Iraq is now modern day Iraq and of course it wasn't called Iraq then, Mm -hmm. back then So that's where, for those of you out there who are visual and want to, you know, imagine the world map, the map in front of you. So that's what we mean by Nineveh. Nineveh, that's where God wanted um, Jonah to go and to, you know, seek repentance and do this prophetic uh, mission. And Jonah refused, right? So Jonah didn't take that up. Um, He fled. So the story is that uh, he fled, and there are different versions of the story, of course, it's only, I'm only re- re- narrating what I've read. Um, he flees, and then there are fellow uh, fellow travellers on a boat or a ship, um, and he's in the Mediterranean Sea, of course. So this is the Mediterranean Sea, and he's fleeing, and he's going to what we now know as, back then it was called, um, I think it was called Tarshish, that's right. It was called Tarshish. But now it's the north of Gibraltar, mm-hmm. so you know Gibraltar. Yeah. Gibraltar and Spain are very close together. Yeah. You can actually see, see. Gibraltar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from, from Malaga. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he fled, and if you can imagine, like the course of the sea mm-hmm. all the way down mm-hmm. to the west mm-hmm. of the Mediterranean mm-hmm. Mediterranean Sea, and so Jonah is is understands that you know God's angry with him. What's he done? There's a huge storm in the sea, a rageful storm. The fellow travelers are very annoyed with him. That, you know, look what you've done because of your refusal. We're, you know, in this storm now. We're going to die. So, Jonah sacrifices himself and says, okay, just throw me out into the sea. And they do. They throw him out into the sea and he's about to drown. Mm -hmm. So, the story goes that God saves him, protects him by putting him... Well, he gets swallowed up by a whale or a big fish. Mm -hmm. And then he's actually sitting in the belly for three days and three nights before... Um, the whale spits him up, vomits him back up, mm-hmm. and guess where he ends up? Mm-hmm. Back to the city of Nineveh, mm-hmm. <laughs> where he refused refused God's mission. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the reason why I'm drawing a parallel is because with Mr. Fox, right? Although uh, we know Mr. Fox isn't a human; yes. he's an animal. <laughs> but yeah. uh, is Mr. Fox is has has come so close. To the encounter of death and not only of his own death but the death of his family. Um, you know, they're starving, mm-hmm. they could have died if they hadn't dug and dug and dug and found the storehouses. Mm-hmm. And the way that I'm seeing it is that Yona kind of, even though he was still apparently angry with God, um, he accepted, he repented, and, and I, I suppose I'm suspecting um what from what I know about the human psyche, um. Is maybe Yona um, evolved psychologically? Maybe he had some psychological growth. Maybe he had a personality change. You know what we say is personal growth, where we let go of our old beliefs and habits and things like that, and we come to a new level of psychological being and understanding. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm only guessing that that's what Yona. What happened to Yona after he uh, repented and. Completed the mission that he needed to do, you know, with with the people of Nineveh, um, and with Mister Fox, we don't actually see that happen. Mm-hmm. What happens is he, he it, it's almost like I, I don't. This is a very strong view, and I know that, but I don't see any humbling of Mister Fox. Like, yes, of course, who wouldn't want to feed your family forever because you found these storehouses? Mm-hmm. But, but has he really taken a, a spiritual lesson or a what, what has he learned from being so
1: close mm. to his family dying? Mm. I think that's a really good question. Um, and, and I think what he probably, maybe not learned, but he maybe doesn't want to put his family and himself in that situation again. So he decides that the safest way is to not do anything at all um, and, mm. and not have growth in some way, which... I know we'll talk about later in the in this episode, uh, but that's a really interesting connection and I'm sure, well, I'm assuming that for Roldal it wasn't an intentional parallel mm-hmm. that he drew, mm-hmm. but it seems quite significant mm-hmm. in terms of the number three. I mean, the fish's belly, mm-hmm. it's like being back in
0: the mother's womb, right? Yeah. In the darkness, the primordial kind of unconscious, mm-hmm. and then when Jonas spat out again, mm-hmm. he's given a second chance, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind like, of like a, a reaper. reaper, that's it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. Yeah, rebirth, and that, thats why I was thinking. Well, Mr. Fox, has he really had a rebirth of his? Mm-hmm. You know, but but no, you're you're right. He's not going to. You know, he's going to be thinking about survival. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I thought it was very archetypal, and also, you know, the moon. If we look at the lunar, lunary, lunary mm-hmm. um uh, a celestial body that we have, which is the closest to our planet, is the moon, mm-hmm. and the moon actually also spends three days in full darkness we don't see anything when it's you know before the new moon comes out the lightness the consciousness yeah
1: okay interesting mm-hmm. and i know three the number three is significant in other ways in in kind of the you know in our profession doctor <laughs> you might not want to go into that but it's also three farmers uh so that's another three so i wonder what you've made of that oh. <laughs> I'm
0: looking to Fatma to answer my... <laughs> but she's right. So, yeah, the, the, in our profession as psychoanalysts, we would be very Freudian here. And we would, you know, number three means the phallic stage, which is when children are between three and six, roughly. Mm-hmm. And that's where they um, experience, you know, um, uh, kind of uh, phallic, phallic sort of elements, you know, where they would... There's a lot of sexuality kind of emergence of knowing one's own body, knowing that they, you know, boys have... Have a phallus, and, and uh, um, girls, uh, you know, have uh, girls have you know th- their own kind of uh, genital area mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. and knowing and also feeling jealous between the you know the opposite sex parent wanting to have the opposite sex parent. Mm-hmm. So number three does, it, there's a lot of sexual symbolism with the, the number three. Mm-hmm. And in my practice, and I'm sure and certainly in yours, mm-hmm. um, there are references, you know, when people say to me in my consulting room, they'll mention the number three mm-hmm. in whatever capacity, like I was three years old when this happened, or, you know, um, or let's say, you know, even, even, even just something so benign as if somebody's withheld a, a payment for, 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 the, for the sessions for three weeks, mm-hmm. Even then I would be I wouldn't take it, I wouldn't take it as a dogma, but I would loosely wonder whether the three weeks that they've delayed, does it mean something? Does it mean the phallic um, theme here?
1: Yeah, and, and I was also thinking of you know three and in terms of triangles, right? So three corners and, and triangles are significant for their own um, whether it's transactional analysis, whether it's more psychodynamic kind of thought. Um, so yeah it was interesting maybe three there's there's other uh ways to make meaning of the three in terms of numerology and stuff but oh absolutely three is
0: the number of creativity uh, because okay. because you know like two man woman mm-hmm. plus child yeah so you know three mm-hmm. is like a symbol of creativity and generation mm-hmm. uh, but also you're right there's a very triangular quality to the number three mm-hmm. um but from what I know about, if you're thinking about it from a numerological perspective, mm-hmm. then three does symbolize um, creativity, generation, mm-hmm. and uh,
1: the life force. Ah, uh, okay. Um, Which you it did for Yona, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> but not so much for Mr. Fox. No,
0: not not so much for Mr. Fox indeed. Mm-hmm. And, and number three also, um, even like fairy tales, there's three tasks for the mm-hmm. for the damsel in distress mm-hmm. to complete, or there's three...
1: It's everywhere. Yeah, and I'm immediately thinking of that one with the, I don't know which one it was, but with the axe in the in the pond. uh, And it comes up three times. um, And he, and the last, the third time is the time they actually bring out the axe of gold. I can't remember, but yeah, it's really significant in fairy tales also.
0: Yeah, which suggests that it's so archetypal. Mm -hmm. Three is very archetypal. Yeah. Dad, I wish you would tell us where we are going, said one of the children. <laughs> I dare not do that, said Mr Fox, because this place I am hoping to get to is so marvellous that if I described it to you now, you would go crazy with excitement. And then, if we failed to get there, which is very possible, you would die of disappointment. I don't want to raise your hopes too much, my darlings.
1: So this is a little uh, passage from the story when Mr. Fox and his four children are digging their way through the hill down to the cellars of the, the farmers trying to get food because Mr. Fox, from his numerous trips to the farms, remembers... Um, that if he takes a particular path, he might end up where the chickens are... Is it chickens? Or some one of the Chicken. other birds. Yeah, are, jump geese uh, Are um, stalked. And at this point, he's not told the children where he's going because he doesn't want to disappoint them and they haven't eaten again for three days and three nights. Um, so potentially coming across... Uh, food would would be very big, and also the and not coming across it when they're looking forward to it would be very disappointing. But the thing that stands out for us, Doctor Farah, in this is, um, if we look at it through the lens of parenting and of children and disappointment, how, what do you think? Um, do you think it's important for children to experience disappointment, or should that be something they should be protected from? Mm.
0: I have, a, I have a strong sense about, I think not just as a psychologist, but also being a parent myself. Um, it depends on how old the child is, of course, like how old your, your children are. I mean, it would be very different to when you're parenting an 18-month-old or a 6-month-old baby, or let's say a 6-year-old child. There's a huge difference because, you know, once once your child has language, you know, above two, three, let's say, and they've got some sentences forming mm-hmm. and they're able to communicate with words, um, there's no reason why you can't, as a parent, kind of talk in child-appropriate language. Mm-hmm. You know, like if, if I mean, I mean we're using Mr. Fox's example because it's part of the story, mm-hmm. um, that Mr. Fox has found the storehouse, but he wants to keep it very private yet. He doesn't want to disappoint his children. And I really understand that because Mr. Fox probably would feel really hurt himself. He wouldn't, I think it's not just about, it's it's not just about like, okay, we want to protect our children from feeling disappointed. Mm -hmm. I think the protection can go so far. I mean, I feel very strongly that depending on the age of your child, it's really important for them to uh, experience some kind of disappointment. Mm -hmm. Like I I think I mentioned in the previous episode that failure is very, very important. Mm -hmm. And if I was to give some gift, if I was to give one single gift to my own son, Mm -hmm. it would be like, son, you've got to fail Mm -hmm. at least once in your life because that's going to give you so much you know mm. growth maturity and i'm not saying that's the only thing i think around that around the failure or the disappointment you've got huge opportunities as a mom or a dad mm. to kind of give them a sense of achievement boost their self-esteem mm. praise their work whether it's a drawing that they've made or i don't know mm. uh, maybe doing potty training a piece of poo they've mm-hmm. they've left mm-hmm. for you and you know <laughs> mm-hmm. things like that but coming back to your um yeah, yeah. Coming back to your question is, I I do I think I think that there are times when yes you protect them, mm-hmm. but but there are times, and you've got to get the timing right as well. I think here, of course, Mr. Fox is thinking, oh you know, um, they're so hungry, they're so livid with like they're so livid, they're so ravishing with hunger mm-hmm. that um, do I tell them, and then if they don't get it. Mm-hmm they're going to be disappointed, but Mm -hmm. I think it's more about Mr. Fox's own handling of that, because it's, it's, you've got to handle your own disappointment, but when your child in front Mm -hmm. of you has a, you know, like, has a temper tantrum, let's say, because they didn't get what they wanted, what they hoped for, Mm -hmm. there's a feeling of deprivation, and in a very subtle way though, that's where shame comes in. I know this is about food and mm-hmm. this, it, you, I think listeners out there, you might think this is nothing to do with like humiliation, mm-hmm. but have you ever, have any of you ever out there, even you, Fatma, mm-hmm. have you ever gone out to a grocery store, right? And you've got your list of, well, I've, mm-hmm. I always take lists because I'm a list person, mm-hmm. but you've got your list of items that you want, right? Mm-hmm. And you're kind of looking and you're kind of like, you know, enjoying your trip and and, and you're looking through the shelves and the aisles and you're kind of looking for the thing that you want. Mm. And and, and it's not there. Mm. Like, there
1: is this sense of disappointment um, and and deprivation is the word that's used. Mm.
0: But only if you've got to really notice, you've got to be very self-aware though, Mm. to notice that there's a degree of shame, like, I want... I want. I wanted that. It's on the list, but the shelf's empty. Like it's there's nothing there. And oh, what do I do now? Then you've got to think of a second option, or you go home without it. That, and I, I don't know. Again, this just being my,
1: my own. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I think that there is another layer to this that I was thinking of. It's mm-hmm. um. As parents, um, people want to protect themselves from that feeling of I've been a bad parent, right? So sometimes that withholding of things or information or whatever is the whatever we imagine is going to disappoint the children of course it's to serve children I understand that and to protect them in some way but it's also to protect the parent from feeling like they've been a bad parent um, and the guilt of that would you would you agree
0: I would definitely indeed I think so and it relates to you know, my, my earlier point, you, you, yes, you're so right, Father mother. that, see, as a parent, that's where resilience comes in, and you know what, it's not easy, mm-hmm. I know for parents out there, it's not easy, mm-hmm. because you can't, you've got to handle your own feeling, but also, like, if I disappoint my child, there are so many parents out there, it's universal, mm-hmm. there's, we're, we're not born knowing how to parent, although some of us, or, you know a, a large degree of the population have a very natural maternal tendency mm. but but there's a there's tons of people out there who j- mothering does not come naturally to them mm. like you know and so so it's like it's not just um oh my you know if, if your child's crying or saying things like you know i didn't get it and i'm upset and they're just having a fit of you know they're in a rage or they're just so so upset mm. and crying their eyes out then you you also have to hold yourself like oh I've disappointed my ch- my child mm-hmm. because they haven't got what they what you know they wanted and Mr Fox doesn't want to I, I think also maybe maybe a, a related aspect to what you've just said Fatma mm-hmm. is protecting yourself from being perceived as a bad parent not just by your own inner voice mm-hmm. but your child. Mm-hmm but it's also an evasion of responsibility in a way, because it's almost like Mr. Fox is like, I don't want to disappoint you, so I'm not going to take, I'm not going to say it, because then I'll be held responsible, mm-hmm. and I'll be responsible then mm-hmm. for managing and clearing up the yeah. emotional mess,
1: you know, that comes up with being. Yeah. And, and also in some ways, it, it just makes the, if it does happen, the reward even sweeter, right? Like, so if the children like like we saw they did when they did find out that's where they were they were so excited and so happy to be there so perhaps there is some value in terms of protecting parents and children in sometimes withholding information in mm-hmm. times like this um, but not to take away from the point that you made earlier doctor farah that disappointments also essential and it's something that's developmentally quite mm-hmm. necessary for mm-hmm. children to experience mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: listeners out there if you have any stories because we've just come come on the other side of the kind of Christmas holidays for those of you who um you know actually celebrate Christmas um is if you've had any stories and I'm sure there will be out there where you know um your children have received presents that they didn't want and they're deeply disappointed or they've kind of you know told you that they're angry with you or they've you know they're upset with you Um, Please do write in to us and we'll be happy to respond and let you know what our thoughts are.
1: Suddenly, Badger said, doesn't this worry you a tiny bit, Foxy? Worry me, said Mr Fox. What? All this, this stealing. Mr Fox stopped digging and stared at Badger as though he had gone completely dotty. "'My dear old furry Frump,' he said. "'Do you know anyone in the whole world "'who wouldn't swipe a few chickens "'if his children were starving to death?' "'There was a short silence "'while Badger thought deeply about this. "'You are far too respectable,' said Mr. Fox. "'There's nothing wrong with being respectable,' Badger said. "'Look,' said Mr. Fox, "'Boggus and Bunsen Bean are out to kill us. "'You realize that, I hope.' "'I do, Foxy, I do indeed.' Said the gentle badger, "But we're not going to stoop to their level. We don't want to kill them." So, for me, this particular passage um, really stood out as I read the book, um, and it's it's kind of where things get serious, and we're we con- were confronted with a very real uh, moral dilemma—the the sort of thing about stealing and. Is it okay is it ever justified or is it just a terrible thing right because immediately or at least children are, thought, are taught that um, stealing is a bad thing and we mustn't steal under any circumstances and perhaps that's the general um, way of looking at it that where we can't help ourselves to resources or things that belong to other people but what Mr. Fox introduces to this is a very uh, real, I think, dilemma of, is it okay to steal if your children are starving to death? Um, And then what becomes the lesser evil, right? Like stealing or letting your children die. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know, Dr. Farah, you will have a different perspective and and we can hear um, what you have to say about that. And for me, though, reading it immediately... I know Roald probably didn't write it with this uh, intention and his political views were quite different from um, what, the way that I read it and perhaps ours, uh, and it was written in a different time. So it was probably not intended to be written like this, but immediately off the top of my head, I thought of kind of this um, right-wing immigration, Brexit, imperialism kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, left. <laughs> Which, you know me, is kind of the way that I, I do like that intersectional approach. So one of the things that I was reminded of as I read this was the economic disparity between the global north and the global south, and imperialism, and immigration in particular. Mm-hmm. So if we were to work from the assumption that a lot of what the global north now has has been in terms of resources mm-hmm. has been made off the backs of uh people in the global south so whether it's in terms of you know who served in the british army or resources mm-hmm. that were if we're looking at it particularly through the lens of um the subcontinent you know the trade and all of those things that really that were that resources that were depleted from um, our people and taken to um the global north so you know, added to the empire in that sense. I know I'm looking at just the British at this point, but of course the Portuguese and the French and all of that um, ties into this. And if we were to look at Mr. Fox and his family and then, you know, later Badger and the Weasels and the Rabbits as people who were moving countries or continents for better prospects for their children or to feed their children or to have better lives for them, and the kind of challenges that they are confronted with. Because people who might already have those resources or access to them or perhaps don't need them as much as mm-hmm. they do, um, uh, feel very, want to hold on to it very tightly and feel very threatened by anybody else wanting a part of that. So um, it's I, I thought it was not very... You know, the foxes are occupying very little space and resources in order to survive. Mm. But the farmers feel so threatened by them. And I thought, and I know you might not agree with me, or you might actually, Mm -hmm. that their response was quite disproportionate. Mm -hmm. You know, digging the entire Mm -hmm. kind of hill Mm -hmm. up and staying there for three days and three nights and employing all their men. I think it's about like 180 or Mm -hmm. 183 people that Mm -hmm. are uh, being deployed to take care of the fox. And I know at that point it's become more of a, a battle or a, a thing about ego. It's a, it's a vengeful act. It's a vengeful act. It's not so much about, mm-hmm. hey, here's how many chickens I'm losing. It's the fact that somebody felt they could steal from me or mm-hmm. somebody felt that they had the the right or the ability or the capacity mm-hmm. to, to deal, steal from me. And, um,
0: but, but, but also, if I might yeah. just but, but also, yeah, that makes sense because if you, if, and you're right about it being disproportionate, Be, because if you if you look at the three farmers, and we, we'll talk a little bit about this later on today, mm-hmm. um, a, a, about materialism, mm-hmm. Be, because you, you, you're right, it's not that much that, you know, they, they're, they're full of riches, they have so many abundant supply, they've got their own farmhouses, the three farmers. Um, but if you have a look at their own character, though, um, then they, they indulge in overeating, and they're very sort of, you know, so so. And we'll talk a little bit about that afterwards. But but yes, it makes sense that the the, the degree of proportion is the, the proportion of their anger mm-hmm. because they've been stolen from and robbed from mm-hmm. by Mr. Fox doesn't really fit. I mean, it's not ba- it's not very balanced, or it's not a very. Uh, generous view of mm-hmm. you know uh, it, it's what well, we could say it's not very tolerant yeah it's not a tolerant view
1: yeah yeah and perhaps it's not very different from how you know that right-wing sentiment that led to brexit because there's a sense of something that belongs to us you know resources healthcare, jobs uh space is being wrongfully stolen or taken by people who are not one of us so it's that very strong sense of in group and out group, and us and them, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and what that does—the perceived level of threat mm-hmm. um, that comes with it. And of course, there's a, there are personal psychological ways of looking at it, but also group mm-hmm. um, group sentiment of feeling threatened, right? Mm-hmm. And that's that's part of human history, and it's always been part of human history. Um, I also think another element that comes into this is the the threat that we sometimes experience when we feel our position is threatened. So in terms of power or class, or mm-hmm. um, it's very hard to um, uplift people sometimes and bring, and share what we have. Um, I think we're just designed to to hold on to resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is particularly true for lots of families In Pakistan, also um, to be frugal, to be frugal, yeah, and to to, and also another big thing I was thinking was this kind of urge to marry within the family, like you know, marry cousins, especially in land owning families. So that means that the land that you own Mm -hmm. is not um, doesn't leave the family. Yeah, so it stayed with
0: within. Yeah, yeah. That's across cultures and across time and history. Yeah, yeah,
1: and it's and it's still present in everyday Mm -hmm. Pakistan. In in uh, there are. Land owning families in interior Sind, where the the daughters or the women of the family are sometimes married to the Quran, um, mm-hmm. as a way of well, as a way of preserving the family land mm-hmm. and resources, because that mean, if they were married to somebody outside the family, mm-hmm. then they would be entitled to their share of the inheritance, yeah. which would mean that land is taken away from them. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a practice that's quite archaic, but it's still mm-hmm. um, present. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing that I thought of uh, was how the, the rabbits, the weasels, the moles, the foxes all stick together, right? So when they have that big <laughs> feast, it's everybody kind of coming in together, enjoying. And yes, there's, they're different families, but they should have that shared experience of being mm. the outsiders and the, the ones stealing from... Mm. Uh, and, and if you think of it, Mr. Fox was stealing all along, right? It's mm. not the first time he's stealing from the, the, the farmers. But there's something about the... the uh, it made me think of how immigrant communities often come together mm. and have very closely knit lives mm. in many parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And often cities are organized in ways where um, there are groups of immigrants that live together.
0: Oh, absolutely! I Particularly mean, take, in the U.S., yeah. I don't know much.
1: It's true for the U.K., Dr. Fairley. Oh, in
0: Britain, if you, if you met like Birmingham has pockets of mm-hmm. you know Indian and Sikh community and Muslim community, mm-hmm. then Manchester, mm-hmm. but but also in my own city of Newcastle, um, there was a very well known part of Newcastle which we called the West End. Okay. And the, whenever you, whenever anybody, everybody knew mm-hmm. as soon as you say West End, mm-hmm. that means that's the Pakistani area. Mm-hmm. And you're right. It, because everybody just stayed together They wanted to, you know, Pakistani immigrants mm-hmm. They all, you know, they didn't venture outside mm-hmm. Of their own sort of group mm-hmm. um, They made friends there they, they rented, you know, students would rent housing In that area only mm-hmm. They wouldn't go into a more, um, you know Like a Christian area mm-hmm. Or a white Caucasian mm-hmm. area and, yeah, Or and even a black area, you know Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and we can think about that in two ways, of course One way to think of it would be that we deny ourselves growth by, uh, by sticking to what's comfortable mm. and what is familiar. Mm. Um, but I think there's also some very real realities of what people have to face. I'm I'm speaking particularly through the political and and structural kind of lens right now. When they do venture out into areas that, uh, that you know, whether it's uh, microaggressions or racial violence mm. or. Uh, not finding employment because you're from a particular mm. background, uh, being discriminated against. So sometimes those threats are very real, mm. um, and the reason. So it's, it's a difficult thing to fully understand. That do we do we withhold and stay back and and uh, prevent growth, or do we put ourselves out there and risk uh, attacks? What risk persecution. Yeah, risk persecution. Yeah,
0: I think it's all multi layered. It's very nuanced because for a lot of people, what I've from my own observations, personally, is um, there are very real threats. But then there's also this will of human will, and if the fear of persecution is out, is not in sync with reality, and then again we could question what who says what reality is and all of that, you know, subjective. But, but the fear of persecution, if it doesn't align with the real, very real social threats, then, then I do think that a lot of people unconsciously also decide to stay within their own group and not, you know, I think there's also that layer as well.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And if we were to look at it through kind of what we need as humans um, and, and the order in which we might, you know, like, so some things might be more important, like familiarity... Mm-hmm might be less important than making sure we have enough money to eat. Mm. So employment, and even if that means risking potential persecution, yeah, would would mean that that's a risk we're willing to take as opposed to taking a risk for, say, something that's less important. Mm. Mm-hmm. A personal endeavor, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Dr. Phil.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking of um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm. Uh, So um, for listeners out there, Abraham Maslow was a humanistic psychologist. This is a very basic kind of paradigm that, you know, uh, for those of you who've ever studied psychology at undergraduate level or at A level, this is someone who, um, Abraham Maslow's theory is kind of uh, uh, quite a well-known model of human motivation and needs. And it's a very basic pyramid. It's depicted as a pyramid. And then what you've got on the first level of human needs is um, your physiological needs? So, like, you know, uh, hunger, um, it's like food, drink, uh, sex, mm-hmm. you know, your body. It's basically all physiological bodily needs. And then the next level up is safety. So, you've got to be able to have a roof over your head and be safe from harm and fear, you know, safe from violence and be warm and things. And then it's belonging. So, then you need to have some satisfying relationships, belong to a family, belong to groups. Um, And then there is the next level is where you have some achievement or you feel like you have a healthy self-esteem. And that can come from work life, it can come from personal life, various kind of areas. Um, And then the the very top of the pyramid is actually what Abraham Maslow argued is where we have self-actualization and it's a desire to become everything that one is capable of. Mm. So like reaching your full potential and there are so many souls that pop up on the planet, leave the planet and they've never self-actualized and it's I feel really sad when I think about how many souls, our ancestors mm. have gone through so much suffering and calamity mm. and we as a species right now, are probably with if we have a look at the pyramid right Mm -hmm. we are probably the the first two levels at least Mm -hmm. physiology and safety probably and we are probably one of the most comfortable generations ever because of
1: you know that the resources we have the technology the ways of communication Mm -hmm. now and and i was reading somewhere that this time is actually the most peaceful time in terms of human history ever with the number of wars or violence that's existed, right? Yes. So technically we live in the ta- in times that are safest um, in human history, which is... I'm not,
0: yeah, you know, I'm not surprised. I think that makes sense, mm-hmm. which shows that that's why when I say I actually have a degree of... I feel really, uh, what, what could I call it, Mour- mourning is probably a very strong mm-hmm. word because I'm not outwardly mourning in a very you know melancholic sense, mm-hmm. but I do feel a degree of sadness when I think about our ancestors and yeah. where we've come from, yeah. and how you know humanity. I mean, not not. Uh, I mean, humanity as a whole, mm-hmm. or all of our ancestors on the planet. Mm-hmm have gone through wars like you said, Um, you know, and, and they didn't have these resources. They were away from family. I mean, yes, we've gone through a massive pandemic. That's a trauma in itself. We're still trying to adjust as a species to this. But but we now we have phones, we can video call our family and friends. Yes. They're just a call away. We can see their faces, we can hear their voices. Mm-hmm. What about the times when um you know it would it would have to take a telegram or mm-hmm. you'd have to book a call
1: from your local yeah. post opera you know? It's really interesting. I was reading somewhere else the other day that you know, um I don't know how familiar you are, I'm sure you are with the with the Rukhsati kind of thing yeah. of the of the Pakistani weddings where the, the bride is leaving the home and it's so deeply embedded into our cultural fabric that crying and separation thing because in, in ancient times uh, that would mean that the girl was leaving the village and possibly never saw her family again mm-hmm. um, or like it would be incredibly hard to make that commute to see her family mm-hmm. so even things like that where separation or like or our life, things that we continue to do in our lives today are um, our stories about what life was like for our ancestors. And, and maybe um, our lives are very different. But just kind of building on that point, I do think, and I say this often, I don't know if you'll agree with me, Dr. Farah, but I think that counseling or therapy is something that is um, a luxury that we can indulge in after we've had our basic needs met. Um, I know this is a this is a <laughs> radical perspective mm-hmm. to hold in some way. Where yes, therapy should be accessible for people who are um, homeless or you know going through very difficult times in terms of physiological and actual security, security. But I think you need to have a certain level of stability in those areas to be able to engage in the process of therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would not. I do think that there is a certain amount of readiness that people or there, there's three things right like how able are they to use the space yeah the, the, uh, the willingness the motivation the, the willingness the accessibility and the ability to kind of use the space changes with how much of your needs at the big bottom of the pyramid are met to be able to self-actualize ah oh,
0: that's nice. Okay.
1: I disagree. Do we yeah. Okay.
0: Well I actually no, I would say I agree to an extent, mm-hmm. but I, then I depart from that. Yeah. Okay. Tell us more about that if okay. you want. Okay. So um Okay, so first I'm just going to quote a little bit of a study, right? Mm-hmm. So there was a research study done, I, uh, um, I can't quote the exact journal title, mm-hmm. but we, we know that there's, you know, the, the studies that, that look at kind of um, happiness levels or measures of happiness that are reported by people through questionnaires, mm-hmm. like how content they are, mm-hmm. how satisfied they are with their life, right? And, um, and then they make correlations with that and their income level, mm-hmm. so what their financial status is and mm-hmm. health is. Um, what we do know um, is one trend that we're seeing there are other trends as well but one trend is that what, what, what we're what we finding in research is that once somebody um, once somebody has a basic level of income mm. um, after that point there is no correlation in the research finds no association between level of income mm. and the level of somebody's happiness mm. and so what does this mean? this suggests that as a species, as humans, we only need to have our basic... But again, then we could question, like, what's comfortable for somebody financially is not the
1: same as, you know, somebody else. And that sense of what, you know, perceived um, safety also, right? For somebody, it might just take ha- having um, a roof over their head. And for mm-hmm. somebody else, given their their context, it might might mean having a house that's theirs, that they own. So it's, it's more complex, but... I agree with your point also that perhaps not everything needs to be in place to engage in that process, but I do think that counseling can often be a luxury Um, Mm -hmm. or or the the capacity to engage in the process Mm -hmm. means you have the time, you have the money, you have the emotional space to make that a priority.
0: Okay, I'm going to turn this around. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that to a point Mm -hmm. because of course, I mean, it makes sense. You've got to have some stability and we know as therapists when we make assessments at the beginning, Mm -hmm. we don't do any depth well I at least don't do any analytical therapy with somebody who let's say um, doesn't have a a stable housing or is bunking in their friends places from you know one place to another Mm -hmm. or they're kind of unstable in the sense of uh, they're flipping from one job to another and they're not very so I think that holds its place Mm -hmm. definitely I agree however Mm -hmm. I strongly disagree with the bit about um because then if we if I've seen this in my own experience Mm -hmm. that When you turn it around on its head, Mm -hmm. there are so many people who've come to see me for therapy Mm -hmm. and they have, um, they are so comfortable financially, at least they report Mm -hmm. to me because of their, you know, family sort of status will be quite high Mm -hmm. or there will be people who come, um, you know, for example, I have pediatricians who are at consultant Mm -hmm. level or I will have people who are engineers Mm -hmm. or doctors Mm -hmm. and they've got a fairly very very you know they they come from a comfortable lineage Mm -hmm. so not just their own employment but let's say they are backed up by their Mm -hmm. family's Mm -hmm. financial status yeah that's right Mm -hmm. and they've got a house they've got a car Mm -hmm. and they cannot use the space Mm -hmm. like and they they they, they can in the sense that they will take something away in terms of having some emotional support from me. Mm-hmm. But in terms of if we're really going with... I mean, I'm being concrete here with self-actualization. Mm-hmm. Um, because... And, and maybe it would be helpful just to mention a couple of signs of what self-actualization yeah, is. Yeah. And then I'll come back to my point. Um, so for listeners out there, what do we mean by self-actualization? And you might want to just... The list that I'm going to give, just ask yourselves and reflect whether or not you feel like you, you know. So some of the signs are um, you're able to tolerate uncertainty. um, You're able to view life objectively. You're highly creative. um, You have like several or a few deeply satisfying relationships that you feel are very mutual, you know, you have a deep appreciation for like basic life and nature. So you can sit and maybe meditate on a flower or a plant, or you can enjoy the moonlight or the stars. You can enjoy the sunset or enjoy your cup of coffee or tea. And um, another sign is where you started to accept your own flaws and other people's flaws mm-hmm. and mistakes, and you're just okay and content with that. Mm-hmm. And, and if you have a concern for humanity at a broader level, mm-hmm. You know, and and also just being aware of your own defenses and having the courage to give them up, and this last symptom or sign mm. is actually what relates to our work as mm. psychotherapists mm. because that's essentially the approach that I use anyway as a psychoanalyst is to help the person be aware of what they're doing. Mm. You know, what are their defenses and how what how costly are they to themselves, but also the people around them. Mm. So coming back coming back to my point then. Um, about the people that I see, they, they, it doesn't matter how much of the first two levels of Maslow's pyramid mm-hmm. they have, they just cannot get to that point. And I, for, and it's very sad for some people. The prognosis is so poor. Mm-hmm. But but I, again, I'm only talking from a very cross section, a very small slice of the population. Mm-hmm. And this is where we see character disorders. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, if you look at pathology, mm-hmm. then people who have a disorder or a problem with with the Character or the personality mm-hmm. doesn't matter how much income you, they have mm-hmm. doesn't matter how much material wealth they have. Yeah. This is a psychic thing. They they just cannot transcend mm-hmm. beyond Be, because we've got to understand that for some people the, the 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 payoff is too strong. The unconscious wants to keep them mm-hmm. in that place of suffering.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I can I can understand that that. Um, is more of a psychological process than perhaps a structural one. After a point, uh, the capacity to engage in therapy. I know we've strayed from our original point about stealing, and um, I was wondering if you have anything more to say about stealing, um, through any um, other
0: lens. Mm, well, if if I speak a little bit about my own stance, I I kind of can see, and this is probably me, the the. The neutral part of me who can see both sides of things, and mm-hmm. um, is is that Mr. Fox has its own has his own reasons, and I can understand that because he only needs very little to survive, mm-hmm. and why should he not have a right to survive on this mm-hmm. planet, right? And because then we're, can, we're, we're thinking of things like communism, mm-hmm. sharing resources, and is something you pointed to earlier, Fatima. Mm-hmm. Then, but I can also understand the three farmers because mm-hmm. that they also have a right to their belongings and their ownership and then it's like that there are questions here how do we what what what's the solution to this like you know the three farmers do do they just need to be injected with a little bit of degree of compassion and kindness Mm -hmm. and then you know and is it all right for them Mm -hmm. to reduce their means and maybe let go of some of their resources and give them Mm -hmm. to the animal community Mm -hmm. if if I link this with us as a human species then I'm thinking of you know like ashrams Mm -hmm. and buddhists Mm -hmm. and monks the whole principle of being you might have seen some videos recently i don't know but but this is a more recent thing of how people have become minimalists Mm -hmm. like getting rid of things that renouncing your kind of worldly possessions
1: yeah exactly yeah
0: yeah and it's ironic because Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it, it's not so like clear cut, mm-hmm. it's like actually I would argue that when you let go and you only survive on basic, minimal mm-hmm. what you need mm-hmm. to survive mm-hmm. just just what you need to survive, no luxuries mm-hmm. and things like that, mm-hmm. like living in ashrams mm-hmm. you get three, three meals a day mm-hmm. you get clothing, you get a roof over your head, but if you think about the training that monks go through well, yeah. I mean, listeners out there um, I, I would actually encourage you to do that mm-hmm. but um, this is not like, you know, a prescription. To do it but please do try go go on a retreat mm-hmm. for like a few days away from family and friends and just notice enlightenment and being maybe enlightenment's a bit too idealistic because we're all flawed right when but but just getting to that place of you know um self-actualization it i feel it can only happen when you've lost everything you've got from my own personal experience, but you've got to lose. You've got to lose something very valuable or precious mm-hmm. in your life to, you know, well, not for everybody mm-hmm. because Mr. Fox doesn't. Well, he loses his tail. <laughs> <laughs> he yeah, does. Yeah yeah. 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 So, so yes, it's a bit. You know, it's like it's like if you if you live minimally, mm-hmm. you then start to appreciate the beauty of the. the Life itself, mm, and you get yeah. away from materialism, you get away from the matters of the flesh yeah. and matters of the material world, you know, that yeah. spirituality. And again, it's a debate.
1: Yeah, no, but, but that makes sense also. That does. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that, Dr. Farah. <laughs>
0: for listening to this episode of our series on the Pakistani couch. We really hope that you found our episode to be meaningful and instructive. We hope you'll feel able to write into us either with your dreams for psychological interpretations and alongside that any symbolic insights that we might have about your dreams. Your dreams will be anonymized and any personal details won't be shared. We also hope you'll be able to give us any feedback that you might have to further improve our series and any questions or comments that you want to share with us. We're very responsive, so when you do reach out, you'll receive a reply within 24 to 48 hours there are two main ways that you can write in to us. The first is to email us on the pakistani couch at gmail.com and you might also wish to send us a tweet at on the pack couch. Until next time, take good care of yourselves.